I want to make it clear, this podcast feels confessional for me. It's as if I'm spilling out and over it, knowing well that little fragments of myself and my story have nestled into your ears. And that process, the feeling of being split and shared, is always strange, especially when it's laced with some kind of positive outcome. But tender is not the first time that I've laid myself bare before, and I'm sure it won't be the last. Which is why, in this episode, I'm going to take you back to my first impressions of telling my story. I'm going to describe to you the nakedness of abuse, of what happens when people, from your parents to strangers around the world, know, because you wrote about it. I'm Madison Griffiths, and you're listening to the fourth episode of Tender, a podcast series about what happens after women leave abusive relationships. The truth of what happened and also my memory of what happened is a really complex thing. Megan Carnegie Brown for The Guardian once wrote that most people think of memory like a videotape, imprints of experience that are stored and retrieved on demand. We know, however, that this isn't the case. In choosing to write about the events that took place in my relationship, I was choosing to trust my echoes of truth. I was choosing to believe myself, to subscribe to the notion that what I said and recalled was honest and genuine, and perhaps more suitably, that what I drafted in a Google Doc with an editor from Vice was grounded in cold, hard facts. But how do you believe yourself when the person you were with engaged in a rather unsavoury, albeit protective measure, something now referred to as gaslighting. To gaslight someone means to manipulate a person into questioning their own sanity. This is seen in abusive relationships, and even after the relationship ends, the effects of gaslighting can still progress. Gaslighting is a covert, aggressive way of distorting another person's perception of reality. And besides that, do you know what gaslighting is? Well, it's a form of psychological manipulation meant to make you second-guess yourself, your perceptions, your thoughts, your reality. And it's often done by people who are wanting to either control, manipulate you, or avoid responsibility. I didn't always know that what I was experiencing was a form of abuse. A part of me thought that I had anger issues of which he believed I needed to resolve. There was a time one evening when, after a heated argument, he said that I was the abuser. That it was me that was the problem despite the way I had watched myself crumble into a pitiful silhouette of who I once was. If I was the problem, why had these so-called issues of mine only sprung up the moment he ended up in my life? Why were there no past flames that feared me in my ferocious voice? Or why did I have such a fine collection of friends? Or why did I do well in school and always assumed leadership positions? And why did he use words like dumb and words like cunt and bitch to describe me when I never would have called him these things? One evening, a few months out of the relationship, I walked quietly in a pair of heels toward my car after attending a friend's birthday party. I called him by his name, an abuser, to a handful of people there, some who knew him and weren't surprised, some who didn't and were. Feeling particularly vulnerable, I recited to myself some kind of hopeless meditation. 
If it didn't happen, why do you feel like this? If it didn't happen, why did everybody around you believe that it did? If it didn't happen, who was that man on the tapes that you recorded? If it didn't happen, then what is it that you're remembering? If it didn't happen, then why did his mother apologize? If it didn't happen, it didn't happen. But I know. I just know that it did. That's India. She's a friend of mine. The sunshine she is describing is from a warm day in 2016. The two of us on our laptops sat in the little quadrangle in the back of her home. I don't think I'd consciously planned to be so forthright about what happened. For context, I had written a personal essay, which I was planning on self-publishing onto my blog. And can I just say, when I say blog, I don't mean a website dedicated to the inner workings of my life, featuring my grandmother's old rice and dal recipes and developed photographs of friends of mine scowling booze and bad poems I've written in Times New Roman. My blog was just a place where I put my drawings. I was, at this stage, first and foremost an artist. I would draw detailed illustrations of women and clothes and animals and then I'd scan them and upload them onto my modest Tumblr. For me, confession felt like an important form of recognition. I hadn't received an apology. I couldn't even imagine what that would be like, sitting across from his fidgety, frustrated self as he entertained the idea of saying sorry. I knew then, in much the same way that I know now, that an apology was not heading my way anytime soon. And while my newsfeed was saturated with cute videos of rescue dogs and the relatable, albeit infamous, unenthused expression of Chrissy Tagan, which turned into a meme, I thought I'd disrupt the wholesome folly and reveal facets of my story. Internally, you were kind of coming towards this acceptance of, I'm going to post this out there onto the internet for the world to see, and I'm not sure how it's going to go, but I think it excited you a bit. But before we get carried away, this article that India is referring to isn't the full Monty. While aspects of my abuse inevitably nestled their way into the fabric of my message, the article centred around the sexual pain disorder I'd lived with for eight years. But in its full gory glory, it was picked up by Vice, and this proved the beginning of an intricate alliance with storytelling, with admission, and with the truth. And then came Article 2. In the second article I published with Vice, I wrote candidly about my experiences in a relationship with a man whose name I changed to Theo. Its storyline was as follows. I started by describing the day we met, my feet dangling in the pool of a friend's family home on a warm evening, my interest in him, how curious he was, how different, how at 18 I was captivated. Amidst the bad things, I wrote as well about the good bits the way they tiptoed around the hurt like a ghastly drawing framed in the most ornate 
ravishing structure. The way I felt so close to him in the evenings as the two of us lay head to toe in his tiny single bed. A sleeping body is just a sleeping body after all. With him, there was no malice after midnight. I also wrote about the scare tactics. The way in his darkest times he'd tell me atrocious things as his body hovered over mine. Or even just silly threats like, don't you ever call me an asshole again as I lay beneath him. The article was bolstered up with my own drawings, with scans from my diary at the time, my words in cursive, declaring things like, today he told me he'd rather kill himself than be with me. I shared this confession moments before hopping into my car in a pathetic attempt to detach myself from the thoughts, the judgments, and the love or hate reactions of my peers even if just for 20 minutes. But before long, I pulled up outside a quiet Greek restaurant someplace between Balaclava and here, looked blankly at myself through the review mirror, opened up my phone to scroll through my notifications and became stifled by an overwhelming amount of support. My friends, they were so generous and so encouraging. People who barely knew me reached out privately to tell me about their own experiences. I told Hannah to read it just to see if the two of us cried at the same time. Somebody I used to see occasionally at local parties confessed eagerly. There's this, this part of your history, this part of your person that I hadn't experienced before and I had no idea about it. I had no idea about this pain and suffering you'd been through. Coming forward felt as if I had stormed into my newsfeed, but imagine this. My newsfeed is happening IRL, in three-dimensional real-time, and every single person I'm connected to is interrupted by an EA Games version of myself. And this version of me lights a flame in my kitchen that sounds and looks and burns like my story. And that's because in The Sims, when a fire starts, you cannot avoid it. Gameplay stops. The brigade is called and each member of your pixelated family frets about in a panic until all is resolved. Megan Nolan wrote for Vice that the Me Too movement's success as a campaign was the totality of its saturation. Every platform taken over, illuminating the exhausting ubiquity of sexual violence. Despite this being years prior, I felt all of those same feelings associated with such an unapologetic gesture. Look at me, I demanded my peers, and they did. But coming forward also invited criticism from the public, not the constructive type, if there is even such a thing when it comes to responding to tales of abuse. Coming forward in such an obvious way meant that the closeted gaslighters who detest women reared their ugly heads in the vice comment section. They started their own fires and they had the tools to do it. I may have had the flame, but what turns a fire into a blaze, the sort of blaze that burns through the bodies of women and homes everywhere, is gas. And suddenly there was that, and light. Scary, angry light. I originally planned to read out some of the comments, if I'm being honest with you. In fact, I had 35 seconds of recorded content dedicating to reciting those words and phrases, but I decided to cut them out of tender at the last minute. 
I thought it ironic to go out of my way to prove that something bad happened to me in an episode dedicated to interrogating gaslighting. And I trust that you all will trust me. And apart from anything else, they were way too bolder. Eden Strong for Babel wrote that studies show that for some victims, the trauma of not being believed has more of an effect on them than the actual assault itself. And I only kind of disagree with her, but perhaps not in the way that you think. I disagree with her in that I believe that the trauma of not being believed is not separate from the assault, but rather part of it. It isn't a standalone afterthought, but the hateful echo of what once was. The paradoxical thing, perhaps, is that during my relationship, it was my voice, not the angry declarations of disbelieving men that comment regularly on Vice articles that resounded their assumptions about me. As you heard earlier, I too doubted myself. These men were now competing with me nobody else with me and my own self-doubt and as much as overcoming that sense of blame and self-skepticism took a long fucking time they said nothing i hadn't already said i almost wanted to laugh in their faces to tease them for their unoriginality see modern day sexism is hardly radical or controversial or edgy excuse my joke but the pussycat dolls were right I don't need a man. I don't need a man to feel loved, to feel fulfilled or powerful. And I sure as fuck don't need a man to project doubt onto my lived experiences. I've done that too much myself. One evening in 2016, I went to the movies. I love the movies. I went to see the girl on the train, perhaps foolishly, as I had no idea what it was about. But by this stage, I had owned my truth. I had written articles upon articles to reference, and there was a small disport of messenger conversation threads with friends that detailed the things that happened with him as they happened. Unfortunately, however, my phone had been dropped one too many times, and so I got a new one, not having backed up my files. This meant that a horde of blurry selfies disappeared, as well as a lot of my Candy Crush progress, and most importantly, the tapes, the recordings of the abuse. I don't want to give too much away, but there is a moment in the film where we realize that the truth isn't all that it seems. As audience members, we were told that she was one way, damaged, unbelievable, a little bit hopeless, when in fact, she wasn't this at all. After the film, I pull up outside my house with the person I went with, anxious and concerned. I have nothing to prove that it happened, I tell him. Nothing. No tapes. No fucking apology. Nothing. What if it didn't happen? What if it didn't happen the way I thought it did? He turns to me and says, I know that it did. You are proof enough. Your words are proof enough. I believe you, Madison. And you know what? I believe me too, and I'm proud of me, and memories fade a little and change, they always do. We get haircuts, and our legs thicken or become smaller, and mosquito bites emerge in the summer, and we forget the names of childhood friends and what songs we had on the first mixtape we gave our crushes. And that's okay. 
but I don't need all of the puzzle pieces to know what the image looks like. I am the image. And if anyone knows what happened, it's me. How to stop a gas fire. To use the extinguisher, stand eight feet away from the fire and aim above the flames. Keep in mind that once you use an extinguisher, everything in your kitchen will need to be cleaned thoroughly. If you can tame the flames with a pot lid or baking soda, do that. I'm sure in some parts of my brain and my memory, the small remnants of a gas fire burn. But as for everywhere else, the flames have well and truly been extinguished. And do you know how I know? I just do. Hey Paul, how are you? This may be totally left of centre, so please feel free to disregard it entirely. Would you be keen to potentially get a drink or a coffee or eat a bunch of chestnuts sometime? Thanks, Madison. That's a message I sent to somebody I met about five years ago, a person named Paul. Paul was my tutor at university at the time. He taught philosophy. I found his self-assurance, his ethics, and his entire demeanor really charming. Naturally, nothing happened. He was my tutor after all, and I was also still in the midst of my relationship at the time. But by March of 2016, it had been two years and I was still really curious about who he was. I wanted to get to know him and thought, heck, why not send him a Facebook message? After 17 minutes, I got this in response. In the midst of the Easter craze, I didn't stop to think whether I should eat as much dark chocolate as I did. Hindsight has not been friendly. How are you? I'm glad that you contacted me. There were a couple of times that I had to awkwardly wave and move on without having the chance to talk. A drink, coffee or chestnut sounds great. You don't happen to live in the north, do you? I want to thank Michael Brodowski for his help in creating episode 4. He generously purchased me a brand new microphone, thanks Mike, one that is much louder and clearer and I am so damn grateful. I'd also like to thank my friend India Ainsworth for her kindness then and now, especially in how willing she was to have a conversation with me revisiting the past. I've mixed, produced and wrote this episode as well as the other three and it has been so nice to receive such incredible support from those of you who have been listening. If you want to get behind Tender, there are so many ways you can help. Tell your dad about it, or your girlfriend, or your work colleagues, or even a random passerby on the street. Or chuck us a rating on iTunes and a review. Every kind word makes Tinder more popular. And if you're feeling especially generous and want to ensure that Tinder continues, you're obviously more than welcome to set aside a couple of dollars to fund the creation of this podcast. If you visit www.tenderpodcast.tumblr.com, you'll find on the left-hand side a button that says Donate. Okay, now for episode 5. I managed to fit a mattress I bought second-hand from a friend's girlfriend into the boot of my car and off I go. I move into a share house in Collingwood with somebody I barely know and a couple I don't know at all. And I also start to open up to Paul about everything. 
and it isn't easy for either of us. We find ourselves asking the question, is it possible to start a new relationship on the back of an abusive one? Stay tuned. I'm your host, Madison Griffiths.